Welcome to the Deer Society Podcast. Here's your host, Brian Lemke. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Deer Society Podcast. Thanks for tuning in today. I'm Brian Lemke and joined by Mr. Mike Ducart and JJ Ducart today. What's going on, guys? Ready for another podcast. Um, yeah. Q&A number two. Mike missed out on the first one, but we got some other questions that he can answer, hopefully. And uh, we'll just maybe kick it off. Yeah, for sure. It's, hey, countdown's on here in Minnesota. We're about time for the season. Season's kicked off all around the country in some different spots. Bucks are hitting the ground. It's exciting. Fall is here. You can feel it in the air. We're all pumped up. We appreciate you guys sending in some questions. We're going to answer a bunch more of them today. And uh, like I said, thanks for tuning in. So, JJ, why don't you kick it off? What questions do we have? Yeah, so questions came in from different outlets. We got some YouTube, some Instagram, some Facebook. So wherever you're watching or listening, um, those are the areas you can submit them. And we'll we'll, uh, take a look and maybe add them to another podcast. So the first one from Dylan Evans is more of just a topic he wanted us to cover. And we touched on it a little bit on the last podcast, but Mike wasn't on that one. So the topic is early season calling tactics. Um, Let him roll into some strategies or thoughts on that one. Early season calling tactics. Okay. Well, first of all, my thought on calling and, and I think a lot of people think this way too, is that early season that you, you can't really call or, you know, the deer don't really react to you. And I think, I think there's some truth to that, but also I think people think that because they don't hear deer talking that much um, in the early season. But we run into a little different scenario. So I'm just going gonna, gonna to walk you through my experiences on early season and some things that I've seen happen in early season. One is I went out to North Dakota, and that was over the Labor Day weekend. So that's like super early up here up north. And it was a velvet hunt, so it was a window hunt. Um, We put some cameras out. We kind of scouted it for a day or so to figure out what was available for a potential target. And um, what we found out by reviewing that footage was, and we didn't expect to have any calling for a velvet hunt at all. I just didn't figure you could call a velvet deer in. But once we watched that camera and we looked at it, all the does and fawns in there were actually more boisterous than, than they are in the fall. So that kind of caught me off guard. There was all kinds of bleats going on and, and you know, talking back and forth. And it was, it was very boisterous. And it, it just, you know, it, it, once again, it caught me off guard. So what does that mean and how can that work for you in early season? Well, that's the thing. I don't really think that calling as or trying to create yourself being a doe or a fawn at that time of the year is going to have any impact on a buck they're really not aggressive because they still have their velvet. Um, They're not really doing a whole lot. They're still kind of bachelor grouped up. So my thought on that, it would be a curiosity thing, you know, more than anything. Um, I do know that there's a a guy here in, actually here in Rochester, Minnesota, at one time he shot the world record uh, velvet buck. And it was not very far right outside of Rochester. And I talked to him a little bit about that. And I says, what did you do? You know, how'd that go down? And he said, well, I seen him there and I knew he was there. And he's all, you know, all excited about it. And I look and he started kind of going off to my left or right or something like that. And he says, all all, all I could think about doing, because I didn't want him to go away, was just do a little bleat. 
And so he just did with his mouth, just a little like that. And it caught his attention and he turned and he just kind of moseyed over there and he killed the deer. So a world record was shot calling. Okay, I didn't shoot it, but I mean, it was. We know the does and the fawns talk early season at, at velvet time. And I wondered how long would it be for these bachelor groups to start kind of sparring and start to do some of those interactions that they know is coming down the road. And we checked the tacticams. Remember that, JJ? The tacticams the other day. And looked, and there was two little bucks sparring. I'm like, well, why, why would they be sparring? They're still in velvet, you know? And then JJ said, no, they're starting to lose their velvet already because we had a couple cool nights. So some of the younger ones lost their velvet, and they're right away. First thing they do is start tickling. Now, that's something I witnessed over and over and over again, is they will try and figure out, what do I have on top of my head? And so when they're in these bachelor groups, what they're doing is they're putting their head down, and they're just kind of touching the other deer's rack, and they're just kind of feeling it out. They're, they're not banging it. They're not trying to show aggression. I think they're trying to feel, what do I have on my head? And you know, how do I use that to my advantage for leverage? And, you know, they're trying to figure out, you know, what do I got? What is this? And so that's where I think the most effective thing, in, in my opinion, is, well, I wouldn't call in, in, in the early season unless I have to, okay? So if I'm in a stand and I see a buck and he's not coming my way, like the gentleman who shot the world record, that's maybe when I would try something very, very subtle. or if I know that buck is kind of heating up an area and trying to post it as his own territory, because all the bucks haven't moved in yet, you know, early season. A lot of your, you know, four-year-olds will come in, and then if you have an age structure of like five, six, seven, eight, they don't really tend to move around that much early season. And they don't, I mean, and I shouldn't say that. They don't, they don't, my experience is they don't run around trying to stake out territory early season. So maybe that's a better way to explain it. And so your maybe your four and five year olds will go in there first and try and stake out that territory, you know, that they feel confident and and secure in. And if a big guy comes in, well that might change their their behavior. But I think you could use that to your advantage and say, hey, I'm a buck and I'm checking out this area. Now that doesn't mean you're challenging him. All you're doing is letting him know there's another buck here. So you could do a little grunt. Or maybe just take your rack and JJ, I'm going to just let you tell your story. How did you kill your deer in the very first sit of the season? And you knew it was your target deer and you knew what was going on there. <clears throat> so I'm going to pass it over to you. Why don't you walk us through that on the rattling side? Yeah, and as you were talking there, I was <clears throat> just kind of thinking, so I've been watching these Tacticam reveals basically every hour over the past couple yeah. of months. Um, <laughs> kind of but one, yeah, whenever one, you have downtime, <laughs> one of the bucks actually just shed last night. And it's the ninth. Today's the tenth, so the tenth of September. So that kind of gives you an idea when they're shedding. We are rattling. We still have a couple in velvet too. So it's kind of that that early September. They're just starting to shed, so the rattling could just start to you know. Don't confuse people. We're talking in. about shedding their velvet. Yeah, shedding their <laughs> velvet. <clears throat> did I just say shed? You did yeah, say did. shed. They did not shed their antlers. Although we did have one that made it into about April this year, which was odd. That's crazy. Um, 
but yeah, they're just starting to shed their velvet right now. So they got red racks and they're start their necks are starting to thicken up and they're starting to rub and, you know, get a little bit of aggressive, but yeah, I told the story a little bit on the last podcast actually about okay. double split, um, circling in and all I did was rattle behind my back with the black racks to just a directional calling tactic. So with the extinguisher, we use the tube and we kind of direct the sounds to different locations. That was just a scenario where I, you know, the buck came out in front of me. I put the black racks behind me, rattled, and shot that sound off behind me to just kind of pull them in. A big strategy on that. Um, but the, you can also watch the hunt breakdown, which is called double splits. Is that the one you're talking about? Yeah, that, that's what I'm talking about because, and once again, that was not a rattle of challenge. That was a rattle, I'm going to call it curiosity, because he thought, well, I'm, I want to stake out this area. This, I'm going to kind of claim this as my own for now. And um, he knew there was other bucks. So he had to come in and say, well, who are you? You know, what's going on? And maybe that's what the world record did. He's out there, you know, I mean, well, who are my does around here? Where, you know, where are they? Because, see, it's kind of a weird transition for us because the bucks are all hanging out in, in buddy groups. You know what I mean? And they're transitioning not out of that early season necessarily, but they're starting to develop their bodies and their racks and their behavior starting to change a little bit they're definitely not trying to beat each other up in competition yet and the does are the opposite you know what i mean they don't want to be around those bucks right now and they're in and the bucks don't want to be around the does i think that's even more so you know, what we've been seeing is that if you got a great habitat and a bunch of does and fawns are in that area, the bucks don't want to be there. They just don't want to be there. I don't know why. You know, maybe they talk too much. I don't know. Yeah, and back to that, probably. Because <laughs> fawns and does do they talk do a lot talk right a now. Lot, yeah. The bucks don't. But um, back to that double split hunt, too. Yeah, I had a lot of things going. Earlier that evening, two small yearlings were rat or, you know, sparring quite a bit. That kind of painted that picture early. Um, and I did try some grunts, just some contact grunts, and that did not work. So there were a few bucks that walked through. They didn't react to the contact grunts, but it was the sparring that really, you know, just triggered him. And that was what got the job done. But, Yeah. Yeah, I think that's all good stuff. I think that, you know, I, I was never one just personally to do, and I'll reference probably five years or more ago, um, I would never call early season. I wouldn't even think about it, you know, because I, w I had this mentality in my head that, um, you know, if I was going to call, I was going to do it aggressively, you know, and, and I knew that bucks weren't in that mindset early season. So it, w it was more of a black and white picture for me. And I, I have been educated since then, you know, being around obviously you guys a lot, but, you know, experiences out there too that I've had recently that, you know, uh, it's about communicating with the deer. It's about understanding what they're doing now. And I think that early season, it can be really effective if you look at it and where you're hunting early season. So let's take an example where you're hunting over a, a food source, you know, maybe it's a big bean field early season. There's probably a lot of deer coming to that field. Now, Mike, to your point, I, I agree with you that bucks and does don't necessarily want to be hanging out together right now. But I will say that if, if it's a big food source, you know, there are going to be bucks and does coming there. Now, how they interact when they get to that food source is a different story. They're not going to, I don't think, mingle right next to each other. But let's paint the picture of you're sitting over this food source. When is that big buck typically going to step out? 
it's he's not probably more than likely going to be the first deer in the field. He's going to be one of the last, and, and and I think that happens a lot because they're smart, they're cautious, and they're going to let those other deer do the research and do the homework for them and tell them tell you know tell that big buck if it's safe or not to come out. He might stand back in the timber and wait for it to get dusk or dark, you know. So. I can see early season calling working very subtly in an instance like that. Now you have to be careful because if you have other deer out there, obviously the last thing that you want to do is alert them. But I think that early season calling could be a way to incentivize a big buck, you know, try to trick him or create the illusion that, look, hey, it's safe. There's a bunch of other deer out here, you know, and kind of convince him into that curiosity social area, try to make him feel comfortable. Like, look, these deer are out here doing their thing and maybe get him out there a couple minutes earlier than he typically would, um, you know, on a normal night without any of that. Yeah, I, I really, I agree a lot with that too. And once again, there's no right or wrong here. You know what I mean? These are just experiences that we've all had. And that's truly how you learn how to be successful. It's, it's about your experiences. Cause you know, JJ experienced something and he did that strategy. The guy who shot the world record did something. He experienced that strategy. That doesn't mean it's going to work for everybody every time in different ge geographical locations. Um, you know, there's just so much that goes into this stuff. And I'm just going to tell you where I'm at with it. I am not going to communicate, if at all possible, with the deer early season unless it's a light rattle. And the reason for that is because, well, a number of reasons for it, but in my mind... First of all, I don't want to blow the deer out. Second of all, I don't want to give up my stand location. And not necessarily just to that buck. It could be to the other deer out there. You know what I mean? And now all of a sudden you got that big old banana nose coming up there. Every night she comes out, she looks up there. You know what I mean? And so for me, it's about patterning. And if there's a pattern, if there's a window, I'm in there. Otherwise, I hunt very little early season. I'll go golfing. I don't care. Why would I want to burn out something I've worked so hard to position myself for outside of the good windows? It just doesn't make sense. But now I'm older now, you know, so I don't have quite the burning fire where I have to be out or I'm just like shaking. You know what I mean? Well, and that's a great point, too. And we talked about this a little bit last podcast. And I think it's interesting. One of the questions last podcast was, how do you kill a, a, a buck or a big buck? on your farm in the first 10 days of the season. And JJ's first answer was, well, you have to have a buck there that you want to shoot, you know, and that's the thing too. I think that has a lot to do with how much and how aggressive you are early season. Look, if you don't have a deer that, you know, you're running cameras and is really, really religious and, and, you know, you got a good crack at them. It's, it's better to, you know, play it cautiously, especially early season, because like, like they say, and, and it's a lot of time true, you know, the best is only yet to come as we get into those later, you know, later weeks of October and first week of November. Now, I can't tell you how many people that I talk to or that talk to us and that we know, and we know a lot of the deer in the area. We know a lot of places where, you know, people hunt. And I would, I, I hate to put a percentage on this, but how, what percent of people do you think blow the deer out of their hunting area in the first three weeks of, of, of the hunting season? I would guess it's got to be close to 60 to 80%. Because they're overhunting too early. And you're sweating. And that's the worst thing. Early season, you sweat. You know what I mean? If they know there's a human in there, 
that's that's the kiss of death. The big boys, anyway. You know. So how do you combat that? I mean, you're you're early season hunting. You know you're going to sweat. I mean, what 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 are you doing? Walk us through kind of your your uh, mentality and your process there early season. You know, to combat that as best as you can. Yeah, JJ's actually the scent Nazi um, because he scolds me all the time. He scolds everybody. Um, I've gotten a little lazy as I got older, but um, developing and understanding scent control, um, developing scent products and understanding scent control is a, a major, major, major part of something that I've been doing for two decades, okay? And I learned it by experience. We didn't think about scent. We didn't, you know, really do much with it, especially when it was early. Remember I took you guys out when you were, what, 12? And we started bow hunting. I was a professional... Uh, uh, goose guide. I had my own outfitting, sir. You know, deal. I used to call them the, you know, regionals, worlds, and champion. You know, I didn't get a chance to hunt, so we learned this, um, basically out of just experience. You know, we weren't guided by anything, and but I took that same approach to understanding behavior and communication, um, as as, as normal. Um, and, and you know, now I'm kind of straying off a little bit, but the the scent control piece. Finally, we, we invested in these expensive carbon suits and not understanding wind direction or anything else. Well, finally, we, we invested in them because we were bow hunting, and that's just what bow hunters do. So we invested in them. And we immediately started seeing more deer. Okay? And I picked it out right away. I'm like, well, they're young deer. You know, I mean, we, we didn't know what we were doing, but they're young deer and they're does and they're coming out in their pattern. But they, they're not coming out more often, you know. And if you look back on the season, we saw way more deer this year than we ever saw in the past three years. Because you, you wouldn't see a lot of deer. Of course, we stunk, you know, I mean, badly. And um, I'm sure we were all sweaty getting up in the stands and everything. So that's when I, that's when I picked up on it. But getting close to deer and learning their communication and learning the verbiage that they use and trying to get those exact sounds and recreate them in a call. And that's what I did for four years. And to get them right next to you, I understood how important scent was. And I learned very quickly um, that, that, that you really had, and I didn't preach that, okay, because I was promoting communication. And I didn't have a scent control product. But that's different now. Now that we've kind of built the company up where it is, and we're actually able to catch our breath and keep up with the demand, and, and I say that maybe not anymore because we just ran out of phase. Uh, I'm, uh, this is, this is, this is, I'm just letting the whole world know right now that the last five-pack of phase is going out the door next Tuesday. And today's what date? And we got to wait for the next batch to get bottled up and get here. And it, it's, it's a shame, but they're still out there, though. Go, go look at your stores. You know, there's some, some nice stores that carry that. And if you find it, let your buddies know. But, um, yeah, we're, we will run out. And it's because the stuff is so effective. We put as much time and effort into understanding what's turning a deer inside out as we are with how can you get close and communicate with a deer and get that deer to come over to you. And what we found out was that 
deer smell stuff all the time. Well, how come they don't bother a farmer's got the tractor sitting out there and I can drive by them and they don't mind four-wheelers and the lady walking the dog and then they come walk? You know, how come the deer behave differently in different situations when people are around? You know, and so I started kind of thinking about that a little bit. It's like, you know, they can tolerate a certain amount of scent and they can tolerate a certain strength of human scent. In other words, how close is that person? Can I see that person? Are we in a urban area where they're smelling it all the time? Or are we out in the middle of nowhere? If I catch any kind of whiff of human scent, you're not going to see me. You know, or is this a strong human scent? So I know that person's right next to me and gone. We've all seen it. It happens all the time. You break a sweat on a warm day. You get up in the stand. They get downwind. Gone. And it's the strength of that scent that flips them out. And so, but what, what, what is that scent that's flipping them out that way? And that's when it just clicked in my brain. It's the human scent. It's not gasoline on your boots. I mean, if it's super strong, you know, if they see it on the trail, I'm not saying get gas on your boots, but I don't think that's what's turning them inside out. When they smell something that's not normal, and this is my, once again, all my experiences, and I'm using the same thing I did when I, I developed a communication system, is they'll lift their head, and they're like, well, what is that? And you can just look at them and look at their body language to find out, you know, are they flipped out? Or are they like, what is that? What's going on? Are they stomping on the ground, you know? And so over the last three to four years with FaZe, I've been getting more and more and more and more experiences of deer literally standing directly downwind of me and catching me move for one, you know, like, what the heck is that? And then I just freeze, and then they just freak out, freak out, freak out, and then they go back to eating. They'll circle you, circle you a couple, three times, and then they go back to eating. It's the craziest thing I ever, I ever experienced, but it's all based on human. It's not based off of, you know, anything other than human. That's what it is. It's human. A human turns them inside out because they know you are, you're going to kill them or you can kill them or could kill them. And that's what flips them out. And so that's what we attacked. It's all about the human order. That doesn't mean we don't take care of, and I'll let JJ go through this now. I'm going to hand it over. That doesn't mean we don't take care of other scents on our gear because we do. And that's why I say he's the scent Nazi. You know what I mean? So you get, we got camera gear, we got backpacks, we got this, you got bows, you got arrows, you got all these things. And you're practicing with that bow and you're doing all these things. And maybe you got a dog, you know. I mean, I'm not a dog guy. I mean, I don't, I like dogs, but I just, dogs will, they just have a lot of odor. You know what I mean? And I just don't want to have to deal with it. And plus my wife don't like them in the house. So anyway, um, yeah, you have to take care of those other odors, but that's not what phase is about. Phase is about not, Missing out on that opportunity of that chance for that season, or in fact, chance of a lifetime, and it's, it's so effective, so effective. It's just mind blowing how effective it is. Well, I think that just led us into maybe we need another scent control podcast instead of <laughs> doing that all on on this one. But back to the the original calling thing, I think it's really crucial early season you know, not to give up your bag of tricks and, you know, educate the deer the first time out, you know, save that for when the time is right or you have that big buck encounter, you need to call. Don't just, you know, 
what do people always say about the kitchen sink? Through the whole kitchen sink at them, that's just yeah. not what you want to do. So save it for when the time is right and early season may not be be that time. So And and if it's your, you know, if it's your year spot for the season, don't burn it up early season. Just don't do it. Just be patient. And you know, get your data, get your your information. If it's a spot where, yeah, you're hunting state land, who cares? There's deer bumping around all over the place out there. That don't that don't matter then. You know, if it's a place that you don't care about as much because you know that there's other people out there, you can be way more aggressive as far as how much you hunt and you know if you want to bring a deer back this way because it's really, I mean, if you go out to whitewater or whatever thousands and thousands of acres well you can't manage it you don't know their patterns because you're not out there but but yeah if anybody has any scent control <clears throat> questions or topics you want us to hit maybe that'll be our next podcast um if brian doesn't have anything i'll go to the next question though yeah shoot so we're going back to calling it's actually rattling from patrick myers uh when is the best time to rattle and what tone of rattling do you use during that Time. So it's kind of a, a broad question. It could be broken down into different parts of the seasons. Um, maybe we'll go with Brian first, and then we'll work our way down. Yeah, I, I don't have a lot to say on this one because I'm going to kick it over to the uh, the mastermind over there, Mike. But I, I would just say... Um, you know, pay attention to what the deer are doing that time of year, you know. Uh, and when you're calling... I like to not think of it as calling, think about it as communicating. You know, Mike always preaches, talk to the deer when you call, you know, make, make it important, make it a message, you know, communicate like you're talking with the deer, not like you're calling at a deer. So that's all I got, Mike. I'll kick it over to you. Well, I'm, I'm going to just go right to that point right there. Um, you absolutely have to communicate with that deer, say something to that deer, and you have to understand that language, understand that behavior, understand what it means, and understand why I'm saying that. What, so you have to be smarter in that communication process. In other words, that deer is doing or saying something at a certain time of year. He's behaving a certain way. You need to understand and know what can turn that deer inside out, not just like JJ said, throw the kitchen sink at them, because that just, boom, they're gone. And I'll tell you what, the number one thing when it comes to calling and communicating and verbal communication is volume. For, I don't know how long they've been making deer calls, 50 years, 100 years, whatever it is. 99.9% of every deer call that's ever gone on the market is 10 times louder than a deer. I'm just telling you straight up, that's the way it is. And if you're going to yell at a deer 10 times louder than they normally talk to each other, you are going to startle that deer. There's just no way around it. I can't stress that enough. And so if you understand what a deer is saying and you can communicate with them on their level, at the right, I mean, volume is communication. So I'm saying, hey, how you doing? Or, hey, hey, how you doing? I just communicated, said the same exact words, by totally different communication. And you have to think at that level. Okay? And you just, you just have to. And if you don't, you're going to say, oh, these calls don't work. Well, of course they don't work because you're not doing, and they're not going to work every time, you know. I mean, how much did you pick up every single girl you wanted to go out with? 
I'd like Brian's think so, like, but yeah. Brian's like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hate to say it. Maybe, it, it, maybe, it's, <laughs> maybe it's me. But I <laughs> Anyway, so. And then let's go back to well, the I, actual question. because Yeah, I think part. you broke that down pretty good. What are the deer thinking? And I just have three bullets um, as far as the best times of the year. We already covered oh, yeah. early season. That's what it was. Um, the different rattling times and tone. Pre-rut and post-rut, I would say those are the three best times to rattle. But again, you're saying different things because you're trying to think, well, what does a mature buck want right now? Early season is more that like we just covered the last, you know, podcast and a half basically is it's that sparring curiosity. You're just trying to, you know, ease it in uh, pre-rut. That's it's around here, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Midwest. That's that late October. Um, first few does are coming into estrus bucks are getting pretty crazy. They're fighting. They're trying to, you know, show their dominance. They're uh, pushing each other around. That's when we get really aggressive with the black racks. And that's when we do our first extreme rattling sequence with the black racks and then post rut again once the deer so during the the peak rut the bucks lock down a lot of those does and then there's not a lot of rat rattling just doesn't work that well during the the uh, peak rut but then it comes back alive post rut when now there's few does that are left in estrus with many bucks trying to find the last hot doe so those are the three best times um, I could kind of go into my sequences, pre-rut and post-rut, but maybe do you guys have a, a favorite for those two times? Well, I have a comment about what's the best time to, to rattle, and every single year it's been proven over and over and over and over that you come into the rattle, I'm going to call it the rattle window, and we've done it. I mean, I'll, there's days, there's about a, would you say it's a week? Seven to ten days. Seven to ten five days. To ten, five to ten, yeah. There, there's, there's, there's a five to ten day window, and we're going to call it the rattle window. So we just made up that term now. Okay? What's so the pre-rut? Everybody wants to know what, what the, the, rattle, rattle the rattle window is. The rattle, <laughs> and that shifts with the rut for the state, too. It, and it does. It absolutely does. And it can shift with the weather, too, a little bit. Something, the weather might spark it off even during, you know, Minnesota might change from year to year. It's not going to be the exact same date. But... When you hit that rattle window, oh my gosh, if you don't have rattle rack and if you are not rattling, you are missing out on the most exciting deer hunting you'll ever have in your life. And when you hit that window, (laughs) anyway, that's the best time to rattle, okay? What do you think, people are going to go, oh, when is it for my state? You know, I know I can hear it right now in their minds. Minnesota, it's never a set date, but it's usually what about that third? Yeah, I, I have a, a number or, in my mind, and it's always the twenty fifth of October. I don't know why, but that's just so. The so day you so you get it. So look at so okay. like the twenty fourth. I'm in the stand, and I just don't rattle. <laughs> <laughs> and the twenty fifth, I'm rattling. See now, if I, if I'm out there on the. On the twenty, and that's blind rattling too. I mean, it's different yeah. if you see a deer and you're trying to communicate with them. But I'll change that a little bit. If I'm out there on the twenty fifth and it's kind of a cold, crisp morning with no wind, oh my god! Yeah. If it's the twenty fourth and that's happening, that frost, oh geez, I am out there just smashing them suckers together. 
Yeah, and that's just it. You know, that window, and it, it is so noticeable. It's funny that you say that because it is five to ten days there, and, it, and it's it, JJ's right. It aligns with the pre-rut there. I, I would say here in, in Minnesota, you know, we get it 25th, I was going to say 26th, anywhere between, like, the 22nd and the 31st. Like, that's the window where, where that we're talking about, this rattle window. When you say rattle window, I think of a window that I used to have in my first truck. <laughs> so it was a rattle window, but um, that rattle window is awesome. I love that in the morning, early. And I, I will throw out a tip here. When you rattle like that, do your rattling sequence. And, and I, you might have heard it before, but trust me on this one. Do it. Don't mess around. Put your black racks away and get your bow in your get hand ready. and be ready because that's the time of year where deer are really going to react quickly. There's a lot of things going on. They're searching. Testosterone levels are high. Deer can react very quickly there, and they can hear that from a long ways away, and they will, can come running. So do your rattling sequence, put your black rack down, and get ready because it can happen really fast. Absolutely. Don't just stand there with a rack looking around with a rack in each hand because you're going to be screwed because they will come not all the time, you know, and it doesn't happen like that exact second all the time either. Yeah. I mean, the little ones are pretty aggressive. They come flying in there. Yeah. It's kind of weird that they would, but they do. Yeah, I think if you're in really heavy cover or like big timber, I could see you doing a shorter sequence and then putting the rack down. Um, if you're in the wide open and you can see further than the deer can probably see you, then maybe you can rattle you know, for a lot longer and pause and rattle and pause. Not worry about it as much i'm just trying to think of some scenarios i've been in but yeah if it's nice and calm you're in big timber and there's just ridges and bedding all over the place you don't know where they're going to come from maybe it's just a short extremely aggressive uh, rattling sequence and then put them down and wait let's talk about how to rattle okay so well there is a technique to the black rack so and because you actually are two deer two deer with two full racks and so what happens with that black rack is the way you want to learn how to rattle is to watch real deer fighting you know what i mean if you got it on your trail camera or whatever even if it's two young bucks sparring learn how they spar learn what that sounds like and mimic that exactly okay that's how you learn how to rattle that's my opinion now, you can't really tell volume from a trail camera or TV or whatever, but when them deer come together, it's just like, bam, they come together. And so that's going to catch their attention. And then the other thing is people think, you know, I shouldn't say that. That's a poor way to describe something. But I've seen a lot of people rattle um, from a, um, well, put it this way. If you got a rattle bag, what are you going to do? You're going to roll your hands going, okay. But when a real deer comes together, bam, and they push each other around, they're not going, they don't do that, okay. They go, bam, and they push, and it's like, depends on how big they are, how strong they are, how aggressive they are. And, you know, so you want to keep that in your mind. Act like you're those two deer. Create that illusion. You know what I mean? And you do that by understanding what those deer are actually doing. That's how you rattle. What else is on that rattle thing? <laughs> Early season's well, the same thing. Yeah, right? I mean, post-rut, I think, is the same type of rattling sequence as that pre-rut. It's just you're waiting 10 days for that peak rut to, in that lockdown phase to be over with, and then I think it's kind of that same type of sequence. I, I agree, but I want to add something to that because here's the deal on that, okay? Pre-rut... They're pissed off at each other. 
Okay, and they're like, this is mine, and I'm getting that first dough coming in, and that's and they're fighting for it big time. Okay, so they're they're thinking I'm gonna kick your butt, Buck. You know what I mean? And then I think post rut, I'm thinking differently in my mind. I'm thinking if you hear two deer fighting, it's like, oh my god, there's a hot dough there. So they come running over there to check out. I want that hot dough. You know what I mean? If it's a younger buck, an older buck, or whatever, I think it works best on older bucks post rut. Because they come flying in thinking there's two lesser deer fighting over a doe. That's just where my mind is on it. That doesn't mean that that's the scenario all the time. But I'm thinking differently. I'm trying to think about what would I be, if I'm in your shoes, big buck, that I'm after, what am I going to be thinking? It's going to motivate you. What's going to motivate me? And that's how I, how, how I communicate all the time. Uh, <laughs> Well, remember the time when I was up in the tree and we created the extinguisher and there was a buck that I knew was bedded somewhere close by. It was, he's about the, that, remember that, about that 135, 10 pointer. And so I'm up in the tree and I was going to make a decision because I had been seeing a bunch of little bucks dogging these does around here and it was a transition spot. And so I knew he was bedded down, and what I wanted to do, and I didn't know he was particularly that day, but what I wanted to do is I wanted to create the scenario of here's some does and fawns moving through this transition area. And all of a sudden, there's a little buck in there pissing, you know, just running around, grunting and clicking and just dogging this doe and pissing her off. You know what I mean? And then I got to a point where I turned this into a frenzy. It started out, you know, okay, here's a doe, here's a fawn, blah, blah, blah. Now we got more. Oh, this little buck's in here now chasing him around. Uh-oh. All of a sudden, somebody got mad. All of a sudden, he got frustrated. Did a, did a you know, the, the croak sound or whatever you want to call it. The roar. There's a lot of names for it. Um, and JJ, all of a sudden, I stopped and I put everything away because I'm like, you know, ready for this deer to come in. And I look over and I'm seeing the branches are just shaking. And our signal was to to shake the tree if there's a deer coming. So I look down to JJ real slow, and he's just laughing his ass off. He's laughing so hard the tree's shaking. <laughs> he's like, what are you doing? And all of a sudden, he grabs my leg and squeezes it. So I thought he was messing with me, right? No, that buck come flying in there. So it was a, if you didn't, weren't thinking the way I was thinking, like JJ, he was like, what's this? What are you doing? You know, it, it would sound outlandish, but it absolutely worked. It absolutely worked. Awesome. I will say one thing to, to just kind of close this question off. Um, you know, great question. If you want to learn more about this, you know, Mike has uh, instructional we videos out there uh, talking about calling in different types of, or different times of the season and different types of calling uh, on the Deer Society app. And on YouTube, there's a playlist of uh, instructionals out there. And uh, Mike actually goes through and talks about each each time of year and different calling tactics there. So definitely a cool tool, valuable tool to check out uh, to learn some more about that there. Yeah, and the important part of that is, uh, Brian, that you need to learn how to get those tones. It's don't just grab a deer call and, and make a noise like Mike said to do it. No, you need to learn how to get those tones. You need to sound exactly like that deer. And the call will allow you to do that. You know, you, there's cupping things you do. There's different pressures. There's, you got to practice. It's not, the deer call is not going to automatically do it for you.
What do we got next on the list, JJ? Well, we got three questions. I don't think we got time for three. Oh, gosh, you better shut um, me up here. Get me, get me the muzzle. Okay, I'm down to two. I bet we got time for two. We got time for two. Okay, let's do two. First one, Jeff Hepting. How to gain private land access or how to approach public land hunting? I'll go first and I'll be quick, okay? It's really about communicating, once again. You know, you have to communicate with, if a stranger comes up to you and wants, wants something from you, you're already, you're, you're, you know, you're judging that person. You're, you're, you're figuring out, you know, what kind of person they are. All right. You have to be honest. You have to be genuine. And you have to accept the fact that most people aren't going to let you hunt. You know what I mean? And you can't be afraid to go ask and be friendly, but it's really just be friendly. Um, I, I don't do a lot of that because I hate rejection. <laughs> I'm so insecure. That's so honest. Way. I'm so insecure. <laughs> um, I don't do a lot of that. Um, well, but then again, once again, I've been through this whole thing and we have places where we can hunt. I use friends. I use friends. I use family. I use connections, introductions, things like that. And that's the way, the best way I think there is to game because they already know you. You know what I mean? And just don't be a, aggressive in any means, any way. And it's, it's really hard because I know when I was really hungry hunter, I made some big mistakes where people would allow me to hunt in their land and I'd be an aggressive hunter out there. And it, it backfired on me a couple of times. So, um, don't know. shoot too big a buck because then you might get kicked off. Well, the, fi- the family that, then starts to hunt. That has happened. <laughs> and don't manage it too well because all of a sudden the big bucks show up and the neighbors and the family start to show up. So that happens all the time. Absolutely. I think the private land question is a million-dollar question, you know, how to gain access. And, and that's always a tough one. But, yeah, be respectful, be honest, be genuine. Um, and, you know, if you do get that access, take care of that property, you know, like it's your own. Be respectful of it. Um, it's always good to communicate with the landowner, you know, as much as possible. And, and, and don't be afraid to help them out, you know, put yourself in their shoes, you know, see how you can help them, whether it's, you know, summer fencing or something, you know, in a day or two there. Um, but yeah, you know, that, that's a hard one. Uh, there's a guy that we, we work with a lot that, that goes and knocks on doors weekly. Um, and he has a lot of success doing it. And, and I don't know what his strategy is. Maybe we'll have to have him come in and, and talk about it on a podcast. But he's very laid back, very genuine. He's, he's a guy that you could sit and, and BS with for an hour and a half and easily. So I, I think that, you know, don't go in there. And my advice would be the first words out of your mouth is, uh, hey, can I hunt on your land? You know, maybe it's introducing yourself. It's finding out about them. It's having a conversation with them. Build that sense of security with them a little bit, you know, talk to them about something that might interest them and then maybe get around to the hunting thing and, and go at it, you know, kind of more passively because the aggressive route isn't going to work a lot. Yeah. And if it's someone you have a relationship with prior to, you know, gaining access, that's just huge on, you know, a long-term hunting relationship too. If you just knock at a bunch of doors, you don't know them, they say, yes, maybe they maybe in two months you're gone or maybe they're going to, you know, you just don't know. Whereas if you know someone fairly well as a friend or, or family or whatnot, then it's usually more long-term. One other thing that I will say that may be beneficial to help you out in gaining access is think about what's valuable to them. You know, what are they gaining from you being there? Um, you know, so maybe it's, it's putting together some kind of plan about how you're going to help them with 
their habitat for future. And it might not even be for deer, but the things that you're doing for deer are also great for the other habitat, you know, and the other wildlife that's on their property. So, you know, help paint that whole picture for them. Don't make it just about hunting and killing a deer there. Make it about the whole picture and, and helping them kind of increase the their habitat or the value of their land or the experience that they could also have out there on that land. Yeah, you know, and on that note, what I've if you gain access to land, um, what I've noticed is there's there's a lot of these people are really intrigued by what we do, you know, and so they like to almost kind of help out. You know what I mean? And when I say that, I mean like, oh yeah, there's a buck over there by that apple tree the other day, and you know, it, they were really moving in around. You know, those types of things. You know, where maybe it's you know you let them know, oh yeah, I'd like to put a food plot over here or get this mowed down, or the deer really like this, and kind of maybe maybe kind of lightly get them involved if they, if that's something that excites them. I think that's a big deal. So I think there was another part of that question too. Uh, how would you approach public land hunting? I'll talk about one real quick. Um, you know, that, that's a, a, a great question. Um, you know, I personally don't do a ton of public land hunting, but we have a lot of public land around here that's really good public land. And I think I talk about it every year, um, you know, that, that we should go and, and try to use that as a resource. But um, I think, you know, obviously first strategy is I'm going to look at, a, at an aerial map um, I'm going to look uh, for different things. I'm going to look for food sources. I'm going to look for travel corridors, funnels, and I'm going to try to get on there and understand what the deer are doing. The other thing that I'm going to try to understand is, uh, and you may not be able to understand it until you really start hunting it, but how are other people using that same private, public ground? Um, how are they accessing it? How, how are they affecting the deer? And then my strategy is not only going to be focused on the deer, but it's also going to be on the people and how those deer are using that ground to uh, basically navigate their way between the other pressure that they're getting. So, you know, uh, focus on maybe um, some some different access routes, try to use it differently than those people or use it the same, but think about how those deer are using it based on the other people hunting it. Yeah. And it's a pretty loaded question and maybe we can dive into it more deep some other time, but like Brian said, you know, you're kind of hunting around the people more than you're hunting the deer. And that not only goes with public land, but also private land that has a lot of other hunters on it, which is some of the stuff we've hunted in the past too. So you figure out, you know, where their stands are. You got to get boots on the ground at some point. I'll get into mapping here in a little bit on the next question, but you got to get boots on the ground at some point. Um, not a bad idea to wait until that pre-rut at times. Um, so you have that fresh sign, fresh tracks understand what a big buck mature buck track looks like and that's going to give you more information than anything um rubs and scrapes could be made by any size deer track doesn't lie um but eventually you got to get boots on the ground and really really figure out what other people are doing where the hottest sign is and, and move on that that's what i would say yeah i and you have to absolutely look for the deer sign there's no question about it if you do not go in there and look for the deer sign it, the maps are great um, and they're definitely an important part, but you absolutely have to go in and find that deer sign and, you know, even do some scouting, you know, see if you can see some deer and that's not always the case. Um, but hunting around the other people is, is, is great as well. Um, deer on public land are used to a lot of humans and a lot of human pressure. And so if you can eliminate the fact that you're a human, I'm going back to phase. I wish I could sell you more because we're going to run out on Tuesday. But 
Um, <laughs> I'm not just saying this either. It's the truth. Um, but anyway, if you can get rid of that human um, smell, and that's hard because a lot of times you got to go way back in there. Remember when we went down to Iowa on that public land? I mean, we, that was the hardest work I've ever done for a hunt in my entire life. And I mean, I've hunted a long time, and I put a lot of effort into hunting when I was younger. That was the toughest physically challenged hunt that I think I've ever been on. We humped With back how many stands, stands and, and ladders. And I mean, it took, a, was it a day or two to, well, first we had to scout it. We took a day or two to scout. Then we finally and looked at the maps. Then we humped it back. I mean, we went in deep. And with the equipment, and then we got it set up, and we waited for the right. We you didn't go in there the next day, I don't think. I think we waited for the right wind, and then we got back in there and we saw deer. I mean, he passed up a lot of deer actually. I didn't have the tag. JJ had the tag, but uh, it was an age structure that he was after, and he wasn't gonna let it go. I would have shot a couple of them deer, but you know. I think I got one other tip, Brian. Sounds like you got something too, but. Something that might work for public land is if you have an opportunity to scout early season and you can just find a big buck somewhere around the area within a mile, at least you know you have a shot at that. And then if you can think of how is that deer at some point in the year going to pass through this public land, where would that be? And what time would that be? Um, you know, that would be my thought also if I had time to scout early season. If I saw a giant, okay, how is he going to pass through this land? Where is that going to be? And then I'm going to kind of plan my hunt around that i'm, I'm going to add one thing to that i'm going for a big buck not necessarily just deer it's an old tale that i heard back in the day from the old school boys and they said yep you always want to hunt the the east west ridges and 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 i think it's the the west end of an east west ridge and that's probably because we have a dominant west wind here but the east west running ridges and them deer, they do, they run them, boy. That whole week for years, when we first started um, Illusion Deer Society, we hunted an east-west ridge that produced year after year after year. I'll end this question with just one last thing, and we've touched on it already a little bit. But I would say if you're hunting public land, be aggressive. I think, you know, uh, find that most recent sign. I, I would say scout more than you hunt. Um, when you find that, that recent sign, your, your most recent information, take advantage of it and go and hunt it, be aggressive, be mobile. I wouldn't go and, and just find one spot on public land and then just sit there with high hopes the rest of the year, because there's so many variables on public land. I would do more scouting than hunting, uh, find the most recent sign that you can and jump on it while, as soon as you can and, you know, move with what the deer are doing, move with that sign, be mobile. Yeah, great point, Brian. Um, last question came in from Rack Hunter. Best way to approach a new property that you've never stepped foot on before. Um, I got a couple notes here. I'll let you guys go first. Maybe Mike, you can go first. I, I mean, it's I, kind I, of like the public land question. Yeah, it, it kind of is because you almost kind of want to know how that property lies. I mean, I would be scouting from a distance right away, I wouldn't go in there and just busted up you know i'm gonna walk through here where's this ridge and that thing and this and that i'd be i would tread real lightly on the edges of it i'd probably look at a map i mean if, if you didn't really know but i mean you're gonna kind of get a feel if there's roads around you can kind of feel and i would scout it i would i would scout it scout it scout it and uh um put so you can put some observation stands in we put them on in all the time in fact 
in the property that we own. Whitetails from scratch, we have yet, after three years, to put in an aggressive internal hardcore stand structure. It has not been done yet, people. And we have a lot of time, a lot of investment in that property, and a lot of work goes into that property. And we have yet to build a stand infrastructure. Do you agree with that, Jay? Everything is is uh, exterior, uh, almost been mostly observation. Yeah, and that's just the overall strategy we have. And we don't know this question if it's like private land or public or what. He just kind of, you know, broad with his uh, question, just new property. But I was just going to dive in a little bit on maps, and we kind of do that with everything, even yeah. our, the property before we purchased it or property we knock on doors for or public land or whatnot. Maps are crucial. They don't tell you everything, but there's a lot of information you can find, and there's there are a lot of maps that you can find, too, that maybe other people are not taking advantage of. I know from an imagery standpoint, um, I'll name off a few apps or sources that I found that are real helpful. Google Earth for sure is a great one because you can use 3D and kind of go up and down and see the terrain. And also you can do historical Google Earth images. So you can kind of take that slider and scroll it back and see what the land used to look like. Um, it just shows you where there may be some trails or maybe there's an image from a different season. Maybe it's the fall or winter or whatnot. Gives you a different perspective. And then um, some of the actual hunting apps. Um, you think about Onyx, HuntWise, HuntStand. There's many out there. And they all have different imagery sources, it seems like. So you're just getting a different view, a different time of the year. You know, see trails, you see the neighbor's food plot, you see this, you see that. Super helpful before you go in there. And then... Um, I don't want to interrupt you here, but are, when you say trails, are you talking about, can you see deer trails, trails that deer are using? Or are you talking about just human blasted trails? <clears throat> well, you can see both. I know for sure, like the wet swampy areas in Wisconsin, you can see the, the trails going into the swamp, into the islands. Um, even huge. CRP type stuff, if it's there long enough, you know, depending on how the farmer has that contract or how that worked, you can see those trails through the CRP. And again, things change, so always got to get your boots on the ground. One that I used a few years ago, which was really good, and then it went away, was Bing Bird's Eye View. That went away. That that was really good imagery. And then I also found some nice imagery on the county parcel website. That's actually the most recent, so that's within... In our case, sometimes it's within months or under a year. So that's extremely good map. So, you know, it just tells you some things that, you know, maybe someone put up a building or a cropland went into CRP or CRP went into ag or whatnot. So find as many maps as possible on the topographical, the imagery, and just start there. That's that's my first approach on, on looking at a new property. Yeah, I, I think we have to look at, and that question depends on, or the answer depends on what time of year it is, you know, like if it's right now, yeah, I agree with Mike that I'm not going to go and dive right in the middle of the property, or if it's October, I'm not going to go and dive right in. You get it, uh, you know, in the summer, a little earlier spring, I think it's okay to obviously go and dive in there, or the winter, obviously ideal, because um, that can tell you a lot of information. But, the, you know, I'm going to go in there and I'm going to uh, use my arsenal, put as many tools out there as I can. So I'm going to take you know, as many tag game reveals as I have, and I'm going to get them out there in, in certain locations. If I dive into to, to more of that interior, I'm putting a cell camera up there 
and going to leave it so it can give me the intel that I need without having to go back in there. And then I'm able to scout from a distance. You know, I think that you have to really, again, maps are great. Look at maps first, always number one, but get your boots on the ground, get in there and try to understand what the deer are already doing. You know, that goes for if it's just a permission property or, or it's a property that you're going to go in and make uh, invasive changes on, you're going to put food plots in. I think first understand what the deer are currently doing and try to use that to your advantage. You guys have done that with the whitetails from scratch property, you know, especially on that oak roost side, the deer are using it a certain way. And, you know, you guys are using that to your advantage before you go and do all these invasive things and try to change that. Try to understand what those deer are doing currently. Use your trail cameras, uh, scout from a distance for sure. Understand your food sources, understand them well. And I'm not talking about cropland necessarily because that changes so much, but fruit trees, early season, man, fruit trees are hot. Obviously, acorns are hot. You know, do you have the white? What are they eating? You know, is there any beans that are green around that area? Food sources are huge because they're changing throughout that season too. And so they're going to change their behavior and their patterns accordingly. I would say if you're getting a property right now or just going in there for the first time, you know, go in there with an open mind and think proactively, you know, don't necessarily think, yeah, obviously if you can find a spot that you can hunt right now, next week, yeah, that's great. But I would be looking at a property now thinking exactly kind of what JJ said before. Okay. What's this property going to do? Where are big bucks going to travel through in a month and a half from now when it comes to the pre-rot, rot, things like that. So a lot of times when you walk your property this time of year, you know, deer are starting to open up scrapes, but you can tell where they've had scrapes previously. I mean, uh, if there's a big community scrape under a tree on a field edge or, or deep in the timber somewhere, you can tell that there was a scrape there. Look for old rub lines, you know, because a lot of times mature bucks, they'll, they'll use the same kind of corridors in the same travel areas. So try to look and find as much of that history as you can and try to incorporate into the, that into your game plan for the coming weeks. It seems like the properties we've been hunting, kind of some, some of the core ones, it's taken, you know, three, four years to really understand what happens there throughout the whole hunting season. You know, I hunted in Wisconsin in the first couple of years. I was completely lost with the swamps and islands and the way they moved. It was, I was just, it was, I was horrible. And even some of the stuff around here, I mean, now we got cameras and spots that it's just like, that's, that's the spot. Yeah. If nothing changes, like this is exactly where you need to sit every single year. Now, if something changes that can affect all that, whether that's food, people, logging, you know, whatever, then that changes everything. But takes three, four years. And, and I feel like that's, and we put a lot of work into it. It's not like we just go in there and randomly hang stands. We put a lot of thought into it and it still took or takes, in my opinion, three, four years just to really understand a property. I'll put it to you this way on Labor Day, when we're supposed to be having fun, we were out pulling a half a mile of fence. And I mean, it is work. There's so much work that goes into it. But the thing of it is, what I've noticed when you own your own property you just see things so differently and work doesn't feel like work. It feels like accomplishment. It doesn't feel like work. Look what we got done. Look at this. Look what we did. Look what we have. You know, how many years did we wait to get our own property? Illusion and Deer Society was built off of having no private property whatsoever that we own, that we could have full access and do anything we wanted to. Only just this last few years when we got that first piece of property and now we've added to it over the last year that we finally, for the first time ever, 
had our own property and it changes your brain. I came running into the studio late because what was I doing? I was out there mowing, you know, and that was a priority to me. I want to get that done. I want to accomplish that. And we go out there and you look around, you're like, oh my gosh, look at that. And then you look at the, the cell cam pics and you see the food plot or the water tank or the, or the, the pruned up fruit tree or it's just so fulfilling and it, it doesn't seem like work, but it is a buttload of work. And it won't end either, but that's the beauty of it. The reward is great, and that appreciation factor really goes up. Yeah. Good deal. Well, guys, we're out of time here. We're, we're over an hour. We're getting long-winded. We do have a couple more questions we'll throw in the next podcast. And uh, for sure, keep sending your questions in. I think this is awesome, um, you know, getting questions from you guys, being able to cover these topics, and we're going to keep doing more and more of them. So keep sending in your questions. Like JJ said at the beginning, you can uh, comment on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, any of those, submit questions, and we'll talk about them here. Um, Thanks for tuning in. If you're listening, uh, appreciate it. Watching on YouTube, make sure you hit like and subscribe. Um, Don't forget to check out that Deer Society app. It's free and there's a lot of great information out there. A lot of the stuff that we talk about in these podcasts uh, is shown there in video form and lots of good examples and hunts that, that show what we're talking about too. So thanks for listening. Good luck hunting and we'll see you next time.